Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Anchor. How we doing? How we doing, guys? We excited? Hey, that birthday next week, I mean, come on. We, are you going to invite your neighbors? And Are you going to come? Are we going to do this thing? All right, there is some mild excitement. We'll work on that throughout the teaching. Um, hey, um, at, at this point in the year, like every one of you that is in school should be in school. And um, if you've graduated or you're not in school and you haven't graduated, I mean, that's a whole nother talk at a different time. But like, but like if you're in school, you should be in school at this point. Maybe, hopefully that's not news to you, which means that every one of us that is like, you know, elementary school, preschool, all the way to college, you know, has done this work of picking out the first day day outfit. Raise your hand if you remember, you know, the first day outfit, picking out that outfit, laying it out in advance. You guys remember this? All right. Some of us, like we lived in the generation where we were in school while we had these phones that could take pictures and like you would take a picture and send it to your friend and say, how does it look? What do you think? Did anybody do that? I'm looking for some engagement here, guys. I'm looking for, I know it's nine o'clock, but I know you guys are alive in here. Anybody do that? Well, um, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't in school when I, when the camera phones were out and everything like that. So I want to share with you kind of what some of my first day outfits could look like. You're going to have to use a little imagination because these are not actual pictures of me, but they are the raw data of what Brian looked like on different first days. And uh, this is the first glimpse. Uh, anybody remember this article of clothing? Wait for it. Drum roll, please. Anybody remember this? Hypercolor? Anybody? Okay. I'm looking for some engagement. So raise your hands if you remember hypercolor shirts. Hypercolor shirts. There are a small variety, small sample size. So I'm going to be able to just bless you with some insight on what hypercolor shirts are. That was this brilliant idea. At least it seemed that um, like warmth would change the color of the shirt. So it was this, it was, it took the world by storm for a hot second. Um, and everybody was like, oh, I've got to get my hyper color shirt. And uh, because you can put a hand on it and all of a sudden it changes color and it was cool and it was a gimmick and it worked. But then this happened. And I think this is the reason why it's not popular anymore. Somebody didn't do the math because um, when, when you're like playing at recess, and you're sweating, and you're of that age where you just start to realize that sweat is a thing, all of a sudden, parts of your shirt become different colors, and it just is like a B-O-ometer. You know, it's like, oh, clearly I'm not going to be next to that kid because it's all hypercolored out right around the pits, you know? So hypercolor did not last very long, but I was a proud wearer of hypercolor for a hot second. All right, here's the, here's the next one. Um, a little, little racy here. Uh, so watch out for it. Um, Stonewashed jeans, acid wash jeans. Anybody? 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 Um, okay, so total transparency. I, I have to just be honest with you. Total transparency. Um, I never owned a pair of stonewashed jeans, but my mom did. And so... Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I was in third grade and I'm like, everybody's wearing these jeans and I don't have them, but my mom has a pair. So I went and I wore my mom's jeans uh, to third grade elementary school. And like I, about halfway through the school, I'm like, these look like my mom's jeans. I don't know, how did I get to the point where I made this decision? And so that was a one time uh, for me. That was a one time only for me. 
This last one, though, uh, is um, probably my favorite all-time of first day of school wears, the Reebok pumps. Reebok pumps, come on, come on. We can put it together for some Reebok pumps. Oh man, I know some of you are tickled right now and some of you are remembering these. The thing is like with Reebok pumps is like you could, you could pump it up. Pump, pump, pump. And all of a sudden the shoe that was loose, it got tight, you know. And then, then there was one button you could just press and the air would go out. That's right, the air shh would go out. And I don't remember really liking or caring about how tight it was. I just remember just going pump, pump, pump. Pump, pump, pump. I saved up for those. I think they cost like 120 bucks in 1993, which meant that they're like $1,000 now. And, and I saved up. But here's, here's the interesting thing. In, in 2016, families spent an, uh, an, like a, an average of $700 on back to school clothes. That's crazy. That was 2016. So again, like, I, I mean, I don't know what that translates to now. I'm not an economist, but like, like think about it, like why? Why? I mean, some of it is you got to get that coat because you grew out of last year's coat, but a lot of it is this. In the excitement and the nervousness of the first day of school, we are looking for someone to see us. We are looking for someone to see us, to identify us as cool. We, we want to show off who we are so that we can find our people. There's a, a psychologist and, uh, that says that like, we're actually born into the world looking for someone that will look at us, meaning that we have this hunger for community and the first day of school outfit is just a mere reflection of this desire for, for us to be like, hey, look at me, here I am, here I am. And uh, in the midst of the chaos and the nervousness of that first day of school, we're looking for a safe haven, a person that can be a place of safety in the midst of the chaos. That's why we use this language here at Anchor that we wanna be a harbor. Because here's the thing, like it doesn't matter if you're done with school, every single one of us is like goes on through their life looking for community, even if they don't realize they're looking for community, looking for people that can be a safety, looking for people that can be an encouragement, looking for people that can speak blessing rather than dismissal or curse or di- di- dis- whatever. Look, we're looking for people that will look at us and affirm us and bring us into friendship and relationship. Yes. Every single one of us. Yeah. And I know there's some of us in this room that are like, not me, I don't really need it. But like even that, even the cynical dismissal of your need for community is actually a reflection that maybe your soul has gotten so tired and you've given up, but you still have the desire. You still have the desire. Uh, I don't know if you knew it, but I'm a part of a um, a skateboard gang. Um, Real tough crew. We skate in the parking lot at 6 a.m. on Tuesdays in the summertime because we're all middle-aged men and we have jobs. and, and like, you know, like I said, like we're middle-aged men that, you know, that have jobs. You think that like we, uh, you know, like would be above our need for like affirmation and community and connection. But like, there's a time like about halfway through the summer where like, you know, like, uh, like, uh, like five of us, myself included, we like, we'd been working on a trick for like the whole morning, you know, and, and like finally, like, like I landed mine, another person landed his and another couple other people landed theirs. And like, interesting the very first thing that happened after the trick was landed was what like scanning around looking around did anybody see me do the thing 
Why? Because you, you can't take, yes, approval. You can't take this desire that we have for community out of us. It's as, almost as if God had, has placed it there. It's almost as if God has placed within every one of us a desire to find harbor, to find safety. You probably have been in a situation when you've been out on the water and like the choppy water gets you stressing. My mom had a sailboat for a minute growing up and we would like, you know, she, great decision, mom. You know, you and your two elementary school kids going out on a sailboat together, they're gonna be really helpful for you. And I remember times where like we're keeling over and like, we're like almost like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. We're like literally feeling like we're going to flip. And sometimes like this is what life feels like we're like life has us like almost over like we're needing to like we're feeling like we're going to flip and like what do we cry out what do we really want we want to be level and the waters to be calm we're looking for a harbor a harbor is a place of safety from a challenging environment Kurt Thompson, um, this Christian psychologist he says that every one of us has this desire to be seen safe and secure every single one of us the challenge is this, our longings for community oftentimes don't match our experience of it. Anybody been there? Our longings for that type of community rarely meet our experience of it. We uh, live with this desire to connect and have real friendships. And, 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 and if we don't get it, like I mentioned before, sometimes we kind of cynically tap out on the quest for friendships and we live in this kind of like state of independence and a lack of vulnerability, a lack of transparency. And it actually eventually does a number on our souls and our health because we're made for community. There's a, the stats by a UCLA study. It said 56, or it showed that 56% of people reported that they sometimes or always felt like the people around them are not necessarily with them. And two and five felt like they lack companionship and that their relationships aren't meaningful and that they are isolated from others. Our longings for a harbor oftentimes don't match our experience of it. And the scripture that we're gonna be looking at today describes a woman that has experienced that very thing, but the story doesn't end with her missing out on that harbor. It ends with her finding it and it transforms everything. We're gonna be in John chapter four, verses one to 26. I'm gonna read the whole passage. So you might wanna bring a Bible out. It's also gonna be up on the screen and I, I am going to jump into it. This is in the Gospel of John, and the Gospels are these four books in the beginning of the New Testament that talk about Jesus and record the life and the birth and the miracles and the teachings of Jesus. And this is early on in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. And it begins like this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact, I like this little aside, he was, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and he's, kind of, he's leaving that area for this kind of, the Pharisees are skeptical and critical. And he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he had to go to, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. That is critical. Pay attention to that. 
When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and your well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have, have just said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father near on this mountain, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers that the Father Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, the key to this whole story is this, the time of day it took place. You see, it says there right at the beginning of the story, maybe you missed it, it says that Jesus sat down at this well at midday or at noon. And then the very next sentence, it says that, and at that time, a woman showed up. Now, like in the, in the Middle East, you typically don't go draw water at midday. Why? Because it's incredibly hot out. I mean, think back to this, like the hottest day this past summer when it was like approaching 100 degrees and everybody had done, uh, got done complaining about the rain and they are complaining about the sun and because we are always complaining about something. We just are so proficient at that. And think about like that you probably didn't go for your like four mile run at like halfway through the day on that day. Why? because it was incredibly hot. You either woke up early or you skipped your run that day. That's probably what happened. Unless you're like one of those guys that's incredibly ripped and just loves kind of like running with his shirt off and showing everybody how incredibly ripped he is. And if you are that person, then God bless you and continue to sh show me your ways because I need to learn. But like most of us are not gonna be that or do that because it just is like just taxing, it's exhausting. And 
this woman, like and every, most everybody else, is, is like, it doesn't make sense that she would show up there in the middle of the day. Think about how much water you're carrying for your days. Like how much water do you consume in a day? She's having to carry that to wherever her house is if she goes there in the middle of the day with the Middle Eastern sun beating down on her. It's almost as if she doesn't want to be seen by anybody else because nobody else comes at that time. And she specifically picked the time when no one would see her and where she wouldn't be seen. And this isn't kind of like one of those things where it's like, because she's an introvert and it's better to endure the Middle Eastern sun than be seen by one more person. That's not what's going on. Because as we find out later in the story, she has this history of brokenness that she has kind of like covered and not engaged in, but it is animating her life. And this past is haunting her present and harming her relational life. And so she has showed up in the grocery store across town in the middle of the night. So she doesn't see her neighbors. She doesn't see anybody from synagogue. She doesn't see anybody that might know her. And if she does, she'll jump in the produce aisle when they jump in the cereal aisle because she doesn't want to be seen because if she's seen, it will provoke this sense of shame and she'll do anything to evade or hide from that experience. You know this, I mean, because anytime, you know, you've experienced uh, shame, what do you do? You look down. You hide. This is what happened at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis where they experienced shame and they hid. And we've been hiding ever since when we experienced shame. This is what's happening with this woman. Enter Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus happens to be there right at that moment? Waiting. Yeah, waiting. Yeah. Jesus has a habit of showing up in the moments where we're trying to hide and coming to us in those moments and not coming with a word of harsh condemnation, but creating a harbor. So we're gonna look at these three, thing, three things that Jesus did and we're gonna study them. Here's the thing, some of you might feel right now like the woman and if you are in this place or maybe watching on the live stream, I just wanna say that Jesus will show up right where you are at and he won't come with a wagging finger, he'll come with a warm embrace. Because Jesus is a harbor and the communities that form around him are ones that become a harbor. And some of us might be a person that someone is avoiding because we, they feel like we're a religious person or we're a really good Jesus follower. And, and, and we need to find out how can we can look to Jesus so people, maybe even if they do avoid us, or they find that actually they shouldn't have because we are people that are invested in Jesus and invested in others, we are people seeking to be a harborer. First thing we see is that Jesus goes her pace to help her feel safe. Jesus goes her pace to help her feel safe. You might be finding it interesting that this is the longest conversation in all of the gospels. Anyone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the four accounts of Jesus's birth, miracles, life, teaching, death, resurrection. This is the longest conversation. And who's it with? It is with a Samaritan woman who has a history of struggles and challenges. The longest conversation in the gospels that Jesus has is with that person. And throughout the conversation, Jesus takes her pace rather than imposing his pace on the 
topic and on the flow and on the narrative. And in fact, it's very interesting at the very beginning, he actually says, hey, would you give me some water? Which means that he puts himself in a place where he has to receive from her. And all of a sudden she kind of has the upper hand and the authority and he's the one where he's like helping her feel like she has value to add to his life. And he's not the one saying, hey, I can fix everything for you. He's giving her a place where she can kind of like be actually in a place of security and almost like authority, interestingly enough. He's helping her feel safe because he knows that she feels unsafe. He even allows her, check this out, to mock and deflect. She says at one point, are you greater than Jacob? Like, who do you think you are? And Jesus doesn't say, well, I actually am the second member of the Trinity. And how dare you even think about that? He doesn't say, well, before, before uh, you were even born, before the creation of the world, I existed. He doesn't say that. He just says the next thing in the conversation. Isn't that interesting? And that at one point, you know, like this, maybe it's, this is maybe easily missed, but like Jesus says, We'll talk more about this. He goes, um, all right, go, go tell your husband and come back with your husband. And she says, well, I don't got a husband. She doesn't kind of play all the cards. She plays a kind of a little card. And Jesus says, you're right. You know, this is kind of, I know, I, actually, I know. And the next thing she says is, oh, you're a prophet. You know, she doesn't say, you're right. Could, you, could we talk more about this? She like says, oh, uh, that was enough. I'm going to change the subject. You're a prophet. Clearly, let's talk about you instead of talking about me. This is becoming a little uncomfortable. And Jesus doesn't say, you know what? Let's keep talking about you. We need you to feel uncomfortable. He allows her to change the subject. Isn't that interesting? Jesus goes her pace so that she feels safe. This is a bit of what it means to create a harbor. You know, here's the thing. Truth is effective. Truth is effective. We need to be people of truth because Jesus says, I am the truth. But truth is effective if trust is established. Truth is effective if trust is established. If trust isn't established, truth can scorch a relationship. In fact, you could say this. Truth travels along the rails of trust. And if the rails of trust are not established, you ever seen a train go off the tracks? That's what truth can do. It can cause damage. There's this prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet. And it says this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In Matthew chapter 12, a gospel, verse 20, Jesus says, that verse is about me. And he uses that to describe his ministry. Think about this. A smoldering wick, a flame that's about to be burnt out, a flame that looks like the candle is gonna go. It looks like it's done. And, and Jesus, what, is, what is like the Messiah is the type of Messiah that won't blow it out, but will ensure the flame finds a way to continue to stay lit. Jesus is the one that's not snuffing out our barely burning souls. He's the one that breathes on that little ember that, or that little flame that looks like it's gonna die. He breathes on it. He ensures the flame finds a way to keep emitting light and heat. Jesus goes our pace to make us feel safe. But the next 
element is equally important. Jesus challenges. He challenges. He brings challenging words to us, but what in the context of love. Jesus challenges in the context of love. He gives her a chance um, to acknowledge her situation, and, but he doesn't, he doesn't out her. He gives her a chance to kind of be transparent and vulnerable on her own terms. He says, hey, go tell your husband and come back. He kind of puts the ball on the tee. He goes, hey, I'm, giving, I'm gonna give you a chance to be candid and honest and transparent with me, but I'm gonna let you do it. So, um, hey, go tell your husband and then come back. And he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't force her into vulnerability. He doesn't shove her into transparency. He says, he waits for her to respond and she says, yeah, well, actually, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus sees enough, enough of her willingness right there for him to bring a word that is challenging. He says, you're right. You've demonstrated a little bit of vulnerability, enough vulnerability that I can tell you're okay with this next thing. Yes, you have had this past history, five husbands in the past. The one you're with is not your husband. You know, there are different things that we can do in relationships. And I think different personality types are inclined towards different ways of being in relationships, especially around tough topics. For some of us, you know, we just love being nice and, 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 and kind of smoothing everything over and kind of like leaving a person feeling coddled and never challenged, right? Because a lot of times, because our own insecurities, we're nervous about losing the friend. And so we care more about the friendship than we do about the friend, if you've ever been there. But then there's others of us, other personality types that um, can be harsh and, 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 and end up leaving a person feeling hurt. Jesus gives the Jesus truth in the Jesus way. And when you, he gives the Jesus truth in the Jesus way, it leads to the Jesus life. And he calls us to do the same thing. We need to be able to give words of challenge when that's an appropriate thing in the conversation, but we have to do it in the context of love because that's essentially what the Holy Spirit does. It convicts us of sin, but in the context of comfort and realigning us with the God that is love. This is what it means to create a harbor. Is that I'm gonna be honest with you, but I'm gonna be honest with you because I care about you. Not because I love feeling right and this is my chance to blow you down with how right I am and how wrong you are. No, it's because I'm invested in you and I'm so invested in you that I will not hold back what you need to hear when it's the right place and the right time. Last thing we see Jesus do is he, Jesus shows himself to be the ultimate harbor. Jesus shows himself to be the ultimate harbor. Here at Anchor, we wanna be a harbor, um, a place of safety from a challenging environment, from the waves and the wind of the world that you would come in this, the doors of this church and you, your shoulders would relax rather than tighten. Your breathing would relax rather than go, ha, 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 I'm in a church, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. We wanna be a harbor. But I'm just telling you, like we can't actually be a real harbor unless Jesus is our ultimate harbor. 
unless Jesus is the one that gives us a sense of security and safety and is the one we look to because he's the one that sets the terms for how hard, like for being a real harbor in the first place. See, one thing that I, see, I think is interesting is that as Jesus focuses on himself and shows himself to be the real harbor, Jesus shows, talks more about and focuses more about the source of hope than he does her struggles. Jesus keeps talking about living water. He keeps talking about living water. At the end, he talks about, shows himself to be the Messiah. He keeps talking about like, hey, this is where the source of water is that will never come dry. This is, hey, I can give you living water. I can give you what you truly are thirsty for, what your soul really thirsts for. He doesn't say you're messed up, you're messed up, you're messed up, you're messed up. He says, there is hope, there is hope, there is hope. We know you're desperate there is hope there is hope Jesus here's the thing was what happens is when we focus more on struggle than we do on the source of hope there's this implicit message that my struggle that will is too big for the source of hope because we're talking about it more than we are talking about the source of hope then maybe my struggle is too big for that and it's easy to walk Jesus knows that Jesus focuses on him as the source of hope, as the true, true harbor that can bring a sense of comfort and healing and, 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 and safety to anyone, no matter the sin, no matter the struggle, no matter the brokenness. And when we as anchors see him as our harbor, we get to create an environment where source of hope gets the focus even more than the sin. We don't wipe away the sin. We don't dismiss it. We talk about it. It needs to be talked about. Challenge needs to be a part of it, but it's in the context context of this bigger source of hope. Here's an interesting thing. At the end of this passage, and we didn't actually read this passage um, all the way through, but I'm going to talk about chapter four, verse 29. Um, because this woman has spent, we don't know how long, trying to evade people that would provoke shame in her. She's enduring physical pain so she can avoid relational pain. She's enduring a beating sun and strained muscles and, and just like energy being zapped and no time for, for anything she really wants to do because she's gonna be just destroyed by the heat so she can ignore or so she can avoid the pain of seeing someone that might provoke shame in her. And then she meets Jesus. In chapter four, verse 29, it reads like this. She goes to her, the people. She goes to the people in her town. Who are they? They're the ones that she was trying to hide from. One conversation with Jesus and the ones that she was hiding from, she's able to go to confidently. One conversation with Jesus, one encounter with the true harbor and the ones that she was afraid of, she is no longer intimidated by. It's almost as if that conversation has healed her. So she can walk up, stand up straight, look someone in the eye that once provoked shame and come at it with a new lens, come at it with a new heart, come at it with a healed soul, knowing what she needs to do going forward. And she says this, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. What was the source of shame for her? Everything she ever did. Now she's saying, I met someone who told me everything. You need to meet him too. 
This is what we're about at Anchor. We believe that when you come into real relationship with the living God and have a, have a deep relationship and a deepening relationship with Jesus Christ, you may feel shame on the front end, but you will be healed on the back end. And the people that once intimidated you, the situations that scared you, the things that you said never again, no longer, you can show up right in those places and say, come meet the one that told me everything I ever did. This is available for you. These, this, the reality is this, like God has wired us for community as we've been arguing and our hearts long for a harbor-like community. God has wired us for community, but like we're hurt in community, <laughs> but we're also healed in community. Yeah. This is the tension. I remember um, when Anchor first started and um, we started developing anchor groups. And we're, we're, we're wanting you to sign up for an anchor group today if you haven't already, if you're not in one. But like our first anchor group, it was in uh, our home and it was like the, you know, like the awkward parade. You know, we had such a small number of people, like everybody like came to our group as the, like the first one. It was like, everybody was like Republicans and Democrats, you know, uh, and it was just like, you know, like all the, it's just like everybody, nobody knew each other. And like, so everybody was like, huh, testing each other out. And you're like, don't bring that up, you know? And it's like, but here's the thing is like, after a while, after the first person gla eyes glass over, or there's the first little element of true vulnerability, something happens and the room changes. And it no longer matters what your voting record is. It no longer matters what part of town you're from. What does matter is that there are people in the room that are all hungry for real community and a real God. Every one of you, don't listen to the voice that says, I don't need that. The band can come up at this point. Don't listen to the voice that says, I don't need that. Every one of you in this room has a hunger from God for a harbor-like community. Over the last five years, we're celebrating four years next week, but over the last five years, um, I've met and prayed and talked with people um, that have shared immense challenges and significant hurt and strong desires for God to show up even though they're wondering if he's still real. Some have said to me, frankly, this is my last try at church. And that's like a weighty thing for a pastor to hear. It's like, well, gee. I'm like, well, we wrote imperfect on the wall, so you know. <laughs> what are they saying with all that? I want a harbor. I want a harbor. Is it real? I want it. And I've seen something happen in their life if they've stayed with it long enough, if they stayed in the conversation, if they've pressed in. I've seen those tears and the eyes become smiles on their faces. And I've heard things like, God has met me here. I believe he can. I am home. And this is the invitation to every one of us here. 
I know that the more we sit with Jesus and the more we open our lives to him and the more we sit with each other and the more we open our lives with each other, the more a harbor will form in this place and the more healing will happen, the more transformation you will see and you will experience. Why can I say this with confidence? Is because this is Jesus's mission. This is what he's invested in. This is what he wants. He wants to see you find healing and find safety and find transformation so that you look more like him and so that you're able to show him to more people out in the world. The roots of this is like demonstrated with the elements here. We celebrate with every week communion, bread and the cup, because this shows the depth of Jesus's commitment towards your transformation, that he would take on all of your brokenness so that he would give, so he could give you all of his righteousness. And he said, do this. Every time you get together, take this bread and take this cup like in remembrance of me so that you never forget that I am love. So we're inviting you, maybe some of you as first time Jesus followers today to come forward and to receive this beautiful, tangible, touchable, tasteable reminder of the mercy and grace of God that is aimed at you. And there's also prayer on both sides of the space. And we like to say here at Anchor, if you have a prayer need, don't miss out on the prayer opportunity. There's prayer available for you. Let's make this place a harbor. Let's make this place a harbor. Let's give our life to that. Let's pray for more people that come beat up off the world's wind and waves to come into this place and say, this is what my soul needed. I wanna invite you to stand and I wanna pray this blessing over us that we would become what we aspire to be. We might extend a hand just saying, God, fill me up. Spirit of the living God, would you take away our insecurity before you? Help us to be comfortable being vulnerable before you. Help us to see you are a harbor, to confide and confess, to be honest and real. And help us also to make space for that in relationships with each other, that this place would be a place of safety from a challenging environment and that we would see you as our ultimate harbor. We pray this in the powerful, the unrivaled name of Jesus.